You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. That's it. I've, I've hit record just after what would have been a horrible noise for you. It's my pre-podcast nose blow. I don't always do a pre-podcast nose blow, but I have got man flu. There was, you know, I had the the first day when I fought. Is this going to be coronavirus? Am I going to be the one person that gets it? Someone that barely leaves the house in January. Is the time that I leave going to be when I'm going to get coronavirus? Well, I haven't got coronavirus. And the cold's pretty much gone as well, I'll be pleased to say. But, you know, I thought I should mention it at the beginning because I'm a bit, you know, nasally. I sound sound a little nasally today because um, I've been I've been ill but I've just done a big nose blow and do you know what I think I probably would have been sent back to school by today I think yesterday would have been the day when mum would have been like have another day around the house go back tomorrow see how you feel so I would be back at school so I'm doing this podcast for you and you can't get ill from listening to it that's not how germs are spread you'll be pleased to hear. This is of course Lawrence Abel from Cain and Abel welcoming you to another week's edition of Talking Tricks. Are you getting it, listener? Most weeks? Are you getting it most weeks? Talking Tricks? We're coming to you pretty much most weeks. We aim to be every week. Occasionally there'll be a week off, but you know, since 2020 and last week, and then we missed a week. We did a week, we missed a week, and then now we're here. So what I'm basically saying is, you know, you're probably going to get a podcast every week, but the best way to make sure you don't miss any podcast ever by us is to subscribe to the bloody thing. Talking Tricks, iTunes, Podbean, Acast, Google, however you get your podcasts, you can listen to Talking Tricks and make sure that you don't miss any fantastic episodes and a fantastic episode is what we have coming up today tony middleton possibly the most business savvy person we've ever had on this podcast if you are a performer listening to this you're probably thinking why haven't i got loads of gigs in january who are these people that have all the gigs in january Tony Middleton's got a lot of gigs, got a lot of shows, regular shows. Tony Middleton produces and performs The Magic Hour and Sleight of Hand on the Strand every week, both in central London, in the West End. He's performing these shows every week of the year. He's also the brains behind Masculine and Cook, London's only magic bar, an amazing place. How did he end up producing these two shows a week. How did he end up creating this magic bar? You're going to find it all out in what is a really interesting chat with Tony Middleton coming up on Talking Tricks in a moment. Before then, big shout out to anyone still going in the Perth Fringe Festival and Adelaide Fringe. I can just about see you opening up soon. Valentine's Day, that's when Adelaide opens this year. We won't be there, but a big shout out to all our mates who are who are running shows in Adelaide and Perth. I bet you're having a lovely time, lovely and warm, gigging. That'll be fun, that'll be good. Blackpool Magic Convention is of course just 
under two weeks away now, so I'll see lots of you there. Uh, don't touch me, don't don't high five me or shake my hand because a I'm a little bit ill and b just don't don't want to touch your hands. I've I've seen a lot of people on the Blackpool Magic Facebook convention is thing going on about how do we stop getting coronavirus where do we get these masks from and people are like just just wash your hands when you have a piss which is good advice always wash your hands when you've had a piss so i'll hopefully see a load of you there if you're a listener come and say hi of course let me know you enjoy the podcast let me know what guests you'd like on in the future tony middleton comes up he joins us on talking tricks right now The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us on Talking Tricks is Tony Middleton. We are sat in the Sheraton Grand in a lovely room. One of many rooms that you are performing magic shows in on a weekly basis. I want to talk about all of those shows, other things that you've produced. But before then, let's go all the way back. Let's imagine when you first started doing magic. Was your aim always to be performing multiple shows every week in London, or is that merely a dream? I don't think you can plan anything, really. Um, I don't think I knew what I was going to do, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I knew I was going to be involved in entertainment and performance and magic, probably, in some way, but quite what my career would be, I have no idea, and I'm sure my parents are very worried about it at the time. (laughs) But, uh, you know... you. Things happen and you find your own path, don't you? It's different for everyone. How did your path start? Is it the typical Paul Daniels magic set or is there a much juicier story? Well, of course, I got a book on magic tricks for Christmas, as most people did. I then threw it in the bin. I got one for next Christmas, threw that in the bin, got another one the next Christmas. And I thought, hmm, I better take a look at this. I learned one trick out of it, tried it and thought, oh, this is actually quite good. So I learned the rest of the tricks in the book. And then, of course, back in the day, you went to the library, didn't you? And you asked them to order in some other magic books that you found referenced in that book in the back. There was no YouTube or anything like that at that stage. But that was kind of better, really, because you had to find the secrets. And if you want to learn magic, you had to go and find a magician who would show you something. So one of my first uh, mentors was uh, the president of the Leicester Magic Circle at the time, who was called John Corbett. And I remember him showing me the, you know, the simple trick with the thumb tip and the silk. And he used a, a thumb tip that was just a piece of metal painted pink. And I was, when, it, when he revealed how it worked, I couldn't believe that I couldn't see it before. Um, and he had a little sort of moustache and a bowler hat. And he would, he would sit in the club room and go, I've got this new move. I'll show you this new move. You follow me. Watch this. And he was actually really, really good. But I always kind of remember him as one of those sort of archetypal magician characters, if you know what I mean. Uh, of which there are plenty of different ones in this industry, of course. But uh, he was great. Um, and there were loads of other people at the Leicester Magic Circle as well. And I was the youngest member at the time. I was 16 and sitting amongst all these old timers that were you know, uh, dressed smartly in their sort of tie and suit and talking about the minutes of the committee meeting and um, and I was sort of soaking it all up and getting books out of the library and, you know, doing as many of the close-up gigs that the Magic Circle could offer at the time and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I loved it, so... <laughs> and from that early age then, you know, I guess, a 16-year-old at the, at the Leicester Magic Circle, was magic always the, the one, number one goal? Or did you kind of, was there ever any indication that you might do something else? 
I think I was more inclined to aim towards theatre than magic at the time. Uh, I loved magic and it was my passion and hobby, but I don't know if I thought at that stage I was going to be a magician per se, um, but I knew I wanted to do theatre and I was very excited by making shows. So I was involved in all the theatre productions and things that I could get into at school. Um, I also set up my own magic society. Um, I asked, uh, I remember there was a sort of e uh, an evening where people asked uh, you know, what they want to do for their GCSEs and things like that and I said, oh, is there a GCSE option in drama? And the headmaster laughed at me, which I thought was really rude. Um, so anyway, I've, you know, being me, I just kind of pushed ahead and did my own thing and I thought, you know what, well, if there isn't a magic club, I'll set one up. So I did it and then I had quite a lot of people in it in the end and by the end of my A-levels, we produced a full-on illusion show which had in it uh, Zigzag Lady, it had the Chinese act in it, um, it had, uh, well I did a manipulation routine at the time because I was quite interested in manipulation, don't really do that much now to be honest, but um, we had a whole different spectrum of stuff in it and we had access to a really good studio theatre, I went to a posh school so we were able to get all of that facility as well and there was a technician who was up for anything so he would you know, design a lighting rig for us that would have cost you quite a lot of money if you went anywhere else. Um, so by the end of that, we had a really good show. It's three pounds a ticket. I think it was worth the money. Sounds like a bargain, <laughs> but I haven't even seen the show. <laughs> the show was called Impact, and it had a massive picture of my face on the front of it. And I plastered these posters all the way around the school that said Impact everywhere. So that wherever you went, you were really annoyed because you kept seeing it. But that kind of, in a way, that sort of mentality is um, uh, what it takes to do stuff in Edinburgh or any other kind of festival situation where you've basically just got to make yourself stand out from the crowd and make people buy a ticket to your show. Um, so I kind of had that in me from an early age, I suppose. Um, I just wanted to do it, so I did it, you know. And at that point, was it a case of sort of, you know, uh, reckless naivety of youth, I'll just put on a show and we'll see what happens? Or of course. were you totally, at that, were you driven at that point to, I, I want this thing to be a success? Oh, I definitely wanted to be a success. I wasn't going to let it not be a success. Um, but I had in my head what I thought it could be. And I knew, you know, as much as I did from the magic knowledge that I had acquired at the time, and I was inspired to try and make it happen with the help of other people. So, yeah, um, I didn't think in my head that I thought it wouldn't be a success or that I might die on my ass doing it because I was young, uh, I don't know, you don't worry as much at that stage about things going wrong or losing money. I mean, to be honest, there wasn't an awful lot of money in it. I, there was a budget from the Magic Society that managed to get off the bursar, so that was fine. So I spent all of that. And then, you know, we got the marketing and the print done through the school, so they paid for that, so that was great. Um, so there wasn't much of a risk, to be honest. <laughs> it was just fun. Um, yeah. Nice. And when, when I get, came to the point that I had to go to university, I, I did broadcast journalism at Southampton. I went okay. to Southampton because I support the football team, because right. of my dad. And I did uh, broadcast journalism because I thought, at the very least, at the end of this degree, I'll know how to make my own showreel and uh, promote myself to the press for when I'm a magician. Right. And those things have come in handy. Um, but I wonder, kind of leaving school, you, you, you've, done, you've had your impact with impact. Mm -hmm. um, what was the next step for you? Where, where did you continue your education? And what were the, I suppose, your thoughts behind choosing where to go and what to do? Yeah, well actually I chose very specifically because I think some people don't know what they want to do. Uh, I always knew what I wanted to do and I was really frustrated that I couldn't choose the subjects I wanted to. So 
you know, I remember looking at the GCSE list and thinking, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that. Um, and then I only got to A-level when I started to feel a bit more comfortable because I could choose subjects I actually wanted to do, like music. I did art, but I actually specialised in stage design for my A-level. I did the whole thing on stage design. Um, so then I kind of felt like I could do what I wanted to rather than spend all this time doing stuff I was no good at and didn't really like. And then I chose my degree course uh, specifically because it was practice-based. So I did drama and theatre at Royal Holloway, um, and 90% of that course was, the assessment was either by workshop, performance, or some sort of written work, not by exam. Because I didn't feel that doing an exam was the best way to study theatre, quite honestly. Like, it needs to be practice-based because it's a practical subject. But the, the mesh of research and then doing a performance or a workshop that relates to that research seemed to make a lot of sense to me. And also they had, at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, but they had a huge array of topics that you could choose from. So it was, I was sitting there, you know, looking at what seemed like a kind of selection box of stuff, like, you know, oh, I could do physical theatre, I could do stage lighting, I can do Shakespeare, I can do this, I can do that, I can do puppetry. Um, so I was quite excited by that, because I remember going to some of the other courses and thinking, oh, this sounds really dry, sort of critical theory, and yawn, you know, so I want to do stuff that actually sounds interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I did that and found that I had a lot more time on my hands than I realised uh, because it's an art subject, you only end up having lectures about three days a week, so I then put on shows as well. Um, I did a production of Agamemnon, which went down really well because um, I was very interested in Greek theatre. I studied classical civilization for A level and I did some Sophocles and Aeschylus and stuff like that. And so I did, yeah, so I did a show that was in a, they have the only Japanese no theatre in the West, I believe, at Royal Holloway. And that was a really interesting space. So I put on Agamemnon in that and adapted the um, choreography and the, the look of the show to kind of work in that space. And I really enjoyed that. They also have another interesting space there called the Boiler House, which is, a com is originally the Victorian Boiler House for the main building. And that's been gutted and a dance floor has put, been put in it, a lighting rig around the top. And they've made a kind of what they call a found space, which is a, a bit pretentious, but it's, um, it's one of those spaces that has emerged from, uh, you know, you make the theatre out of an existing building that's got some sort of history or character to it. A bit like the room we're sat in right now, which, by the way, is a replica of a gentleman's smoking room from Banbury, which is bizarre because you wouldn't expect to walk through the... You walk, when you walk into this hotel, you walk into the Palm Court and then you walk into this room and it's a complete change from the 1920s Palm Court outside to this room here. But the person who built this hotel liked that room so much that he wanted it recreated in here, which is really interesting. Anyway, that side... Yeah, so I did my degree. That was all great. I enjoyed myself. And then... I spent about a year working as an assistant director. I did productions at Nottingham Playhouse, assisted on various things at Fringe Theatres in London as well. I uh, can't remember them all now. And then I applied to the MFA Theatre Directing Programme at Birkbeck, uh, which is really, I would say, uh, a theatre directing and producing course. They actually do now have separate courses, one in producing and one in directing. But the good thing about that course is, because you come out of your your BA going, well, I've got my degree, I know everything about theatre, I can put shows on. Of course, you don't know much at all. So uh, the course that Birkbeck offered was actually a, a real practical training in how to produce and direct. And as part of that course, you spend the first 
uh, year of it, you spend one year at a drama school for uh, an entire term. You spend one year at a design college, which we went to Motley, which uh, was in the back of Theatre Royal Drury Lane, I think. Um, it's not there anymore. Um, and then we also spent quite a lot of time with the Royal Shakespeare Company as well. Um, and then you spend a year in placement at a theatre, so they put you in a theatre. So I went up to Theatre by the Lake in the Lake District and spent a year working there on various productions in different capacities. So shadowing all departments, directing some things, assistant directing other things. So I got a huge amount of skills and knowledge from doing that. And off the back of that, uh, I then came out of that and I directed some uh, what they call straight theatre, but uh, I also found that I had a niche with the magic and stuff started to develop from there because it's quite easy for someone to say oh well you know you're a magician and also a theatre director why don't you just put the two together mm. but actually it's not as simple as that and also it doesn't quite occur to you to try and do it either which is bizarre um, but once I started to think more and more about it I thought actually that is a, a good idea um, and I was always doing magic the whole time I paid my way through all of my courses I paid my entire student loan off uh, doing close-up magic uh, so it was obviously always there to earn money. And whilst I was at Royal Holloway, by the way, I met Chris Dugdale because he lived in Windsor. Um, and I had the Leicester Magic Circle um, sort of handbook, you know, for members. And at the back it had everyone's addresses and telephone numbers of the time. Um, and I noticed that he lived in Windsor, so I just phoned him up. Um, I don't think most people probably do that, but I did. So, and then we, you know, we became friends. I, he'd actually lectured once at the Leicester Magic Circle and... I, I said hello to him then, and then I think he remembered me from there. So anyway, we had lunch, and um, he, you know, took me under his wing and taught me a lot of stuff. Uh, and in turn, I then, having did my training, I actually directed quite a few of his shows as well. So yeah, it's kind of gone around full circle, and um, it's interesting how things kind of relate to each other, I suppose. But yeah. So. There's so much to unpack each there. I know, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, the, the one thing I, I just kind of want to ask is, you mentioned, as I think everyone that comes out with, the, with their BA honours, um, feeling like they can take on the world and that they know everything, and very, very soon you realise you know nothing. But mm. um, coming out of that uh, Masters at Burbeck and obviously your, your placement up in the Lake District, yeah. What did you come when when that came to an end? Did you still feel like you knew nothing, or what were kind of you know some of the key things that that you'd you'd learn? What your key experiences were over that year? Which year? The the year that you did your masters. Uh, so that's a two year course. It's a two year yeah. course. Sorry. So the first year was very much working in uh, drama schools and uh, and having seminars and workshops from various different theatre companies and that sort of thing, and then you would then apply some of that knowledge on your placement. Yeah. Um, I had a difficult time on the placement, to be honest, because I went in at the end of the summer season when all the actors were completely knackered, and I then had to direct a main house show straight off. Uh, with I had two very difficult actors to work with who didn't really want to know about a new student director, um, so I found it really hard. Um, but those kind of experiences are sometimes useful. Um, if everything goes really easily for you, you don't and you don't have any failures or difficulties, then I don't think you really know what it's like, if that makes sense. So there's some people who have been lucky enough to get through, you know, so far. Um, was it, I think it was it J.K. Rowling that was talking to people from Cambridge, like graduating, and said, give a speech about failure. I think it was 
I, I haven't seen that. Her though. speech was basically on the lines of, you've not really failed yet, but you will. And that will be really useful for you. Yeah. So um, you certainly learn a lot more when things don't go right than when they do. Because otherwise you kind of, particularly if you do a directing course, you come out going, well, I'm a director, you know, I just, everything's, everything just happens around me. I, you know, I, I know what I'm doing and until it starts to unravel and you have to, you know, really learn the skills of how to pin it back quickly and understand when it's too late for something, you know, then, because those later on, you then learn warning s signals for things. You go, that's not working. That needs fixing now. Um, so that was kind of really useful. And all, you know, a lot of people who have, uh, working at theatre at the time, the uh, uh, production manager and uh, people who worked in lighting and sound, that sort of stuff, I still work with these guys now. And they're sometimes you know, my go-to for specific things because I know that they know their stuff really well. Because the good thing as well is that it allowed me to have access to people who were working at quite a high level in their department. Um, and once you get to know them, you know, you've got a team you can pull in that you can trust. And that's really important as well. Otherwise, you end up with, you know, if, you, if your team isn't good enough, your show isn't good enough. Um, you've really got to make sure you've, you've got people on board who are, you know, the best they can be. Otherwise, it's, it's hard work. You know, I've, I've done shows where I've had difficult actors, difficult stage crew, um, and it's a complete nightmare. You, you go away from the rehearsal room and want to tear your hair out. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's so much easier when someone knows how to do it properly. <laughs> it just takes all of that hassle away. But um, finding those people is quite difficult. Um, even prop builders and stuff like that as well, you know. And it's the same, same with magic stuff. You know, you buy something from a magic shop, you think, you know, this is fine, I'll order that thing and it'll work. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but 90% of the stuff you ordered seems to be rubbish. Um, and then there's that 10% that actually is made well. And then, of course, it never gets manufactured again. And if you only bought one and it breaks, you're screwed. <laughs> so, um, what year are we at then? To, to kind of so that I can. Put uh, it to so I did my here. degree. My BA honours was um, 2003 to 2006, and then I did my MA from 2007 to 2009. I think it was. Yeah. Great. So that gives us a decade to talk about now. Yeah. <laughs> Moving onwards. Um, you mentioned the ma magic going into a magic shop. Um, Hmm. I, I feel I should ask, as, as we're at a point where we're about to lose Davenport, as, as we know it, yeah. um, is that a kind of shop that you've got happy memories with? or Davenport? Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time in Davenport. I think it's a great idea to have a, a magic shop that's a physical place and has a sense of character and history about it. Obviously, they really suffer because of the location and the, you know, there's lots of difficulties there. So I really hope they do find somewhere else, a central, but I can't that it'd be very easy because the rents would be so expensive mm. it's all gone online now isn't it that's the problem and also that has a knock-on effect because you lose communities that way so there will be people who spent time there learn from the people behind the desk learn from the workshops or club nights or whatever they have been doing where that's a place they could go to and really talk to somebody um, to further their craft and that of course isn't the case anymore um, so that is sad uh, so I hope that they do find something because you know they've got such a legacy as well you know it's these places are important for a lot of people i think um i've popped in i remember being very excited when I, when I was younger going in and going to buy something from them um yeah so yeah cool i just thought i'd get get kind of your experience with that so 2009 yeah 
as you know, I, I kind of want to get to a point when you're you know producing these free shows. I know that you you kind of produce so much stuff. What was the kind of I suppose the first thing you did? You know, from 2009 onwards, is is that when you and uh, Chris started yeah, working so together? I, I started working with Chris uh, back then, and one of the first shows that we did together was called An Evening of Magic and Mind Reading, which was at Riverside Studios. Um, which was actually not one evening; it was a three-week run uh, in their studio two or three. I can't remember which it was. It was a long, sort of slightly longer space. Um, I know it's all been redeveloped now, and. I think it should be reopening actually um, but that was looking back on it, it was actually a fantastic show uh, because we had access to firstly really good creative so we had really good lighting designer sound designer fantastic stage manager um, Christmas was really fun to work with um, but I also remember it being quite nerve-wracking because I, I pitched this idea we set it all up and I remember on the first day of the production we sold 14 tickets and I sat there thinking, what the hell have I done? What's the capacity of the venue? 150. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. And then by the evening, we'd shifted about 85 tickets. Yeah. So I couldn't believe it, like just in like 12 hours. Um, so yeah, and the production was really successful in the end. Um, it made a reasonable profit. Do you think you did anything in that 12 hours that impacted it, or do, did those sales all come from stuff that you'd already put in motion and it was just late? I think it, late I think it was that. I think it was the fact that we'd put everything in motion, um, and the way that that particular venue worked was that's when people booked. And you just don't know until you do it with a particular venue what, what it's like, because unless you've got any experience of it, um, it's difficult to know. So, you know, all the stuff had gone out in the brochures and we'd done everything we were supposed to have done as far as I was aware, although it was one of my first productions kind of on my own. So it was a, a big moment to kind of make that happen. But yeah, um, but also we, we got access to a lot of really good tech for that show at a price that was very reasonable because of the people who were involved in the production who could pull in favours because they, they regularly ordered stuff from Stage Electrics or from, you know, some of these uh, big companies for for shows, so we had really good projections in it. Uh, we, yeah, it was it was a great show. Um, yes, so fond memories of, of that particular one. And then after that, I've done quite a few more shows because I'm trying to remember all the titles of the shows because I can't remember them all now. Uh, so we did one called Two Faced Deception, which was in Leicester Square Theatre, uh, which then went up to Edinburgh and got slammed, um, unfortunately, uh, and then. We did not, uh, it wasn't a bad show, it was just a reviewer didn't like it. Um, these yeah. things happen. Chris mentioned when he, did, when yeah. he was on, on the pod about it yeah. um, and kind of shared how that was for him. Yeah. How, how was that for you? You know, you've had this trial in, that, in yeah. Leicester Square, you've gone up there with, you know, yeah. dreams of it going well. How did it feel that that one reviewer had the impact it did? Um, at the time, it was horrid because it was the first show we'd taken up to Edinburgh. Uh, and we were invited by assembly to do it because they, you know, they'd seen some of the stuff we were doing. So, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, it's only one person's opinion. And actually, if someone doesn't like the show that much, generally that can work in your favour as well as against you. But on that occasion, it was hard because also it was the first year as well. So, you know, it's, and by the time you know, any other reviews came out, it was too late. Um, but also they didn't really get it. 
uh, I think, and that happens. So, you know, oh well, move on. Um, but we did several other shows up there as well. There was one called Magic and Mischief, then there was another one called More Magic and Mischief. And I think I stopped working as a director for Chris at that point, and he then produced his own shows, I believe. Uh, but I remember we did a show uh, wait, before those ones, actually, in uh, just a little art centre in Windsor called The Fire Station, which we used to trial various bits and pieces out. So there was a show called Two Night Stand, uh, <laughs> it's Chris's title, uh, which um, was in The Fire Station. And that was one of those kind of lonely experiences where I remember it was bit of a shambles in some ways but I mean it was a good content show like the audience saw a good show but backstage there was semantics you know kind of props sprayed all over the place um it was that was <laughs> Chris won't mind me saying that this is the first time he learned about proper stage management because he'd had his props scattered all over the dressing room and there was sort of you know he was going where are the cards I need for the show and I was like I don't know where have you put them you know so from now on he sort of labelled everything, put things in plastic bags, and he's uh, he's a good boy now. So he's he's learnt uh, about how to manage your props, which is a good lesson for any magician, really. Um, We've, we all have to <laughs> learn that the hard way. We all think, oh, it's fine. I know yeah. where this is, and then yeah. yeah, we all learn. We all, whether it's approaching a table or entering the stage, and you haven't got what needs to be where, yeah, you yeah, are yeah. screwed. Absolutely. Um, what. Did you kind of learn much up in Edinburgh? Was that something? Mm. You, did you enjoy the experience of, of going up there? Um, I didn't. What I did think maybe I, I wouldn't do it again after the first year because it was quite horrid and a lot of hard work. Um, but then we did go back, <laughs> and it got better. Um, ironically, I produced the first show and I lost money, <laughs> and Chris is now doing producing himself and he's making good money on it but there we go that's because he's been there for so long as well he, he's, he's understood the market a lot better and you know we also made a mistake I think of having a venue that was too big the first year mm. um, where we thought oh yeah that'd be fine because normally it would be elsewhere but in Edinburgh you know you want you what you really want to do is start small pack yeah. it out so you can put sold out on your thing and then next year you can go back saying sold out show and you can gradually increase the capacity from there rather than you know think oh yeah we'll go to the 300 seat theatre off we go kind of thing um, you know, with no one knowing who you are, but hey, it's one of those things. But I do remember some really funny moments, like, um, I think it was the more magic and mischief show, when, I don't know which one it was, but anyway, there was a set that we had that was, uh, it was red, everything was red on stage, and um, I thought, oh, what we need to do is we need to like flick loads of black paint at it so it looks like some sort of um, Jackson Pollock artwork, you know, so it's kind of looks funky and cool, right? So. Just the day before, I thought, we'll do this, we'll, we'll flick it, it look great. And then we came to the show, and I didn't realise, but we'd use oil-based paint. So this one woman came down to sit on the chair for a nine <laughs> and as she got up, the chair went... <laughs> so, and then Chris was like, he showed me his hand, like, after the, in the interval, or the end, I can't remember what it was, but, and it was covered in black paint, you know, so it kind of ruined... <laughs> show for him trying to do complex sleight of hand stuff and you're just trying to fight with that but you know these these moments are, are kind of memories that you take away that you know make it fun I suppose to a point at the time it wasn't fun um, yeah it was quite blue at that point but anyway never mind it was uh, you know uh, yeah so the, I mean there have been loads of loads of moments like that to be honest um, too many to, to recall but um, yeah <laughs> we have uh, we have a fair few magicians on here that, that go and work Edinburgh um, but I know you may have lots of listeners who are not magicians 
and we also have guests who aren't magicians quite often on okay. here. So we try and have quite a broad range of of different, you know, pe- uh, acts, so yeah. to speak, on here. Um, so this is, I suppose often I'll ask a magician for their kind of tips on anyone going to Edinburgh, but it's quite nice to be able to ask a producer mm-hmm. um, what what their tips would be on on someone going to Edinburgh, whether they're producing their own show or, or they are solely the producer of a show. And directing, I suppose, that would be interesting as well, because I know we have yeah. directors that listen. Um, well, firstly, uh, I think you've probably got to work out what your agenda is in going, because if you're not really sure why you're doing it, you'll probably lose money anyway. Um, if it's to gain some experience, try and do it cheaply, uh, and then work your way up from there, because there's no need to spend lots of money. Um, it, it, yeah, it really depends on the circumstance. Um, from a directing point of view, I would say make sure you really want to do it because it will take it out of you. And I think the same with any production. I remember once being told by another director, read the play at least ten times and if you still like it, then maybe you should direct it. <laughs> wow. So... Because you can definitely run into the trap of doing something just because you haven't got anything else lined up in your diary. Right. That actually you don't really like the play that much. You're not really that bothered about it. So I think you have to really want it. um, Because otherwise, if you haven't got that fire in your belly, it's not going to be a success anyway. And you'll know whether you think that's really for you or not. Um, So I would suggest that that's kind of maybe a way to think about it. And then if you can... Go and do some research. Find out as much as you can. Go to Edinburgh if you've never been. You know, if you haven't taken it, take a show if you've never been to Edinburgh. Um, find out what it's like there. Think about where you might do the show. Find out as much information you can about the marketplace as possible. Because quite honestly, the people making the money in Edinburgh are the venues. Mm. Um, and Edinburgh, of course, never used to be like that. When it initially started, it was meant to be a place for artists to come and express themselves rather than spend lots of money and walk away with a debt. So... Think carefully about what it is that you need to express and where it could be. I mean, I've always thought, you know, about possibly setting up a venue in Edinburgh and doing it that way around and then putting on what I want to put on in that space. Um, for example, I had the idea of, you know, kind of doing a, like a faux Egyptian hall set up. So make the whole thing into look like it's like a tomb of, do you know what I mean, covered in gold and yeah. stuff. And then you have magicians come into that venue and you, you know, take the bar in there as well uh, you know so you have magic themed cocktails at the bar involving kind of like some sort of you know gold kind of liquids and all sorts of stuff and then so you've got money at the bar you've got your productions that you can do as well and then you can have your say in how you want it set up and you can manage it as you want it to be done so that's something I have thought about doing don't know when I'll do that or if I'll do it but that's something that I've considered because I think that would be quite fun um, yeah I think that'd be great and actually from what I hear on the street uh, talking to people in Edinburgh people are coming up and they're looking for something different now in the whole experience yeah um, it's not you know let's see some co- obviously it still is let's see some comedy let's see some theatre let's see some magic let's see some, an, a show that's different yeah but people are now asking where can I go that feels different what, yeah what, what um, you know what experience can I have that's you know everything about it the atmosphere you know and I think yeah 
um, you know, more and more people are doing kind of walking tours and stuff like that, and, that, and yeah. that's something that people can do. But yeah, I think that's yeah, that would that would hit up there quite well. Well, you've got to think outside the box a little bit, and I mean, there's something that really doesn't work about some spaces because they're quite often converted lecture halls and things like that, and they have absolutely no atmosphere. So if you're trying to evoke something, for me, it's it's a total experience. So the reason I do the show in this room that's uh, that we're sitting in right now is a dark wood panelled room with a detailed um, sort of plaster ceiling, chandeliers, uh, ornate fireplace. It's because I want to evoke that period of magic history um, and really draw you in to what magic is about. And I think if any show can do that, the the to start off with, the way that the audience walks in, the journey, I've kind of felt more and more is so important, you know, from finding the venue to sitting down at their seat. Uh, it should engage the senses and take you out of yourself. Um, so there are some spaces, for example, um, uh, the underbelly's got some interesting spaces, uh, but I'm sure there are, there are lots of other spaces that aren't, aren't one of the big four in Edinburgh as well that would be a really interesting place to see a show you might want to consider even approaching somewhere that doesn't do the fringe and striking a deal with them if the space is interesting enough. Uh, the idea of walking towards interesting because obviously you've got no overheads, that's brilliant. Um, but there are people who've done things like, I remember one company one year had a van that they, they drove around that was the theatre that they made. And they, okay, they could only fit about 20 people in at a time, but nevertheless, they haven't got to pay the venue anything. And they're their show card was a block of wood so they just carved blocks of wood outside the van and just handed them out to people so it's and they, they drove that they then drove around I think and announced something on the top of the of the van to tell people about the show and I thought that's brilliant marketing as well so it's like what could you how could a how could a show happen in Edinburgh that might be interesting is is a good question um, or in fact anywhere because I've kind of become more and more involved in what I suppose the immersive side of theatre production as opposed to a traditional theatre because quite often it's difficult to get a good deal with a theatre because they can be you know well they they call the shots they mm. they look after the artistic program they set their fee they know what their margins are they know what their production companies might pay uh, and they can push it so they know how to make the money comfortably and sometimes sell you a night that isn't actually going to be that useful so you know one thing I've got right with the hotels is that they're not busy so much on a Friday and Saturday night. Now, of course, in a theatre, that's a prime slot. So it's trying to think outside the box and go, how can you set up something where you don't have to play the same game that everyone else has to play? And that can, you know, that can pay you back uh, or not. Sometimes they go horribly wrong as well, but it's looking for a different option. Like, there's always another way to do something. Um, doesn't have to be what everyone else has done previously. You can say, well, why is it like that? Why couldn't I do it some a different way? So yeah, there was a play I think this year in Edinburgh that was um, about a car crash. Right. Two actors, um, but only two audience members because it took place in the car. So the audience members sat in the back, and it was it's right. the, the uh, driver and the person in the passenger seat. And I remember looking at it and being like. That's going to make a lot of money, that is. <laughs> with two people. Yeah, audience, with two yeah. people. That's a money spinner there. <laughs> but how much was it per ticket? Because I reckon you might be able to do that in London. Yeah. And charge an awful lot more. Yeah. And if it, the show only lasted 20 minutes, do it six times. 
charge people. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. You're never going to make that much money out of it. But uh, not that it's about making money, by the way. That's never been my intention or aim. I've just been lucky that I've done quite well. But uh, it's always been about trying to make an experience and make a show. That's what's driven me, not the money, ever. Like, you know, it's, it's always been, you know, when I started doing them, of course, as, as you know yourself, you don't make money, uh, but you do it for the love of it and you do it because there's something inside you that really wants to do it. So you just get on and do it. And then if you're lucky, um, as in the case that I've, I've had with these shows I'm, I'm running at the moment, they've been hugely successful. So, but you could never have predicted that. Um, so yeah. And I want, I want to kind of discuss which, which of the shows came yeah. first and, yeah. and kind of how that all came about. But, but just to put something to bed that, that kind of came up when we were talking obviously about the work with Chris Dugdale, is oh, yeah. there was the performance on Fool Us. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, which I guess happened around, I forget when. 2011. 2011. Um, how, how was that as, as an experience for you? Because I think it's, was really it's good. got a lot of views on YouTube, isn't it? That yeah, it has, yeah. Um, a lot of fun. people said a lot of nice things. Well, that's nice. Um, yeah, I th yeah we had a we had a good fun time doing that. Um, yeah, it was interesting because we didn't meet Penn and Teller before uh, or after, so it could have been nice to have said hello afterwards. But anyway, that's just the way that they ran it. But I remember just before we walked on, the producer, blind producer, or whatever, said to us, "And just let you know, we televised to have only a million people." And I was like. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, no pressure. So yeah, but actually it, it went really, really well. And the interesting thing is that Penn and Teller did not work out how we did what we did. They actually didn't know. Um, but what they did work out was how we had arranged that Chris was randomly brought on stage. And they then edited it to say, oh, we worked that out so you didn't fool us, thank you very much. But actually they didn't work out the routine, which was about travel brochures and the prediction from the travel brochures of, of a random holiday. But of course, you don't want to stand there and fight your ground about it because you, you could come off looking really bad. And at the end of the day, that was what, 12, 13 minutes of really good footage, which has been now shown worldwide. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Nice. Um, so which, which um, did you start, because there's obviously a couple of shows that we mentioned before we started recording that you produced. Mm. I know you produced stuff at Vault's Fest. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You produced other stuff at Leicester Square. Mm -hmm. um, did, did those things come before the first, was it Slight of, the hand, Slight of Hand at the Strand first? Or was it No, it was the Magic first? Hour first. Magic Hour first. But the Magic Hour started at the St Pancras Renaissance Hotel. Yeah. So I was a resident magician there for a whole year. Uh, and I, I did the shows there as a sort of tryout that happened I did I think six shows over three months or something like that um, in one of their private suites upstairs um, which is great because it had uh, it had the it had the bedroom and then next to it, it had this um, a room that was lined with um, gold leaf wallpaper uh, so we did the show in there and then <laughs> we just went to bed at the, <laughs> the end of it and they had this massive bath where you could you could stretch right out in it with a rubber duck and stuff like that. So that was really good fun. Uh, but it was also a bit of a nightmare in some ways because you had to keycard everyone through special doors to get up to this suite. And um, it meant latecomers policies and stuff like that it was really hard work. Uh, and in the end, we ended up moving the show uh, to what is now the Kimpton Fitzroy, uh, which is, is the Russell Square Hotel. Why it's called Kimpton Fitzroy, I do not know. 
for goodness sake, just keep it classic. Uh, you know, Russell Square is where it is, so just call it after the location. People like that. Um, same with this one that we're in now, Sheraton Grand Park Lane Hotel. It's called the Park Lane Hotel, okay? You know, it says it on the thing outside. In fact, it's even the mosaic that's got PLH in it. You know, just keep it like simple. Just put a logo there. No one really cares about Sheraton Grand, but anyway. Um, so we moved that show from there to uh, Russell Square. Then we moved it to a little small hotel in Bayswater that you will never have heard of, but it had an amazing Victorian drawing room. Uh, really fantastic space. Uh, but then that had structural issues <laughs> and the building had to close for a period of time whilst they sorted it out. So we had to move the show. We went down to St. James's to Carlson House Terrace uh, and hired a room in there. And that was great. But the problem there was that there was no bar because it was a sort of humanities and research. I think it's what ICA is actually. Mm -hmm. um, so the, they had a reception desk and they had various rooms and nice library rooms and stuff like that. So the spaces were really great. But there was nowhere for anyone to kind of chill out before the show and it feels showy in yeah. that sense. So that ended up, we had to run the bar there and they wouldn't give us a decent price on the drinks. So that was kind of a thankless task to run the bar and it became a bit of a headache. So then we moved it again up to here at the Sheraton Grand Park Lane Hotel. Uh, but the thing about it is that you've got to try and get um, the venue that has good access from the tube, toilets in the right place, um, a good atmosphere when you walk in, Five star, preferably, um, because it has a certain cachet about it, and a right, the right room for the show that's available when you want it. And to line all of those things up together is really difficult. Uh, but it's been here for over three years now, and they like it a lot. So it's, you know, it's done really, really well. Uh, but to answer your question about Leicester Square, so we did, um, yeah, we did one of Chris's shows there. I also produced a show with David Stone there that was more recent. That was after The Secret Seller project which we can talk about in a minute so yeah. I can come, you can pick me up on that again if you want and what was the other thing you asked the uh, you did some stuff at the bulbs oh yeah so okay right well um so yeah so now i run three shows this year at least i'm running three shows but i have run other ones the previous year so the magic hour which has been running will be in april it will be seven years wow it's been running. that's awesome and for at least six of those years it's been every single week um which i could never have predicted would happen Slight Hand on the Strand started at Savoy uh, and it was run there for two to three years. Uh, we've done over 100 shows of that um, and it's now moved to the Meridian uh, Hotel because the Magic Bar is there as well and it makes sense to do a deal with the bar and the room and, and wrap it all into one package. Although annoyingly it's still called Slight Hand on the Strand so it's slightly confusing but hey, um, probably is everyone likes the name of the show and the brand of it. So yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's the Magic Bar which we can talk about in a bit so I suppose the next bit would be the vaults so I did a show there with another producer uh, called Magic and Mixology where I booked various different magicians and the idea was that you went into if you're ever into the vaults it's underground and it's it's a very evocative space although also very damp uh, which is not so great when you're a card magician uh, but they have several different spaces in there and we had this idea of a walkthrough experience where you would uh, go into the different tunnels and you would find a different magician and they'd each do a show for you for like 20 minutes. So we had, I think, in the first one, I think we had Laura London, we had Brendan Rodriguez, we had, oh, I was in one of them as well. Uh, so I, I was dressed in white tie and tails and did a bit about Victorian magic. 
Um, I think I had the wettest tunnel to work in, which was really awful. Um, yeah, the sound was sort of all over the place. It just kind of was crackling and popping and stuff like that. But anyway, it, it was very well received, and I think people liked something a bit alternative, so that worked. We did another one where it was a bit like a sort of close-up at home situation where we used one tunnel and we had magicians who then rotated round the tables. I can't remember if that was before or after that one. Um, and then after that, we did uh, we did a show called Master of the Macabre, which was a big show in the theatre, which was a very challenging project um, in lots of different ways. Uh, it was a horror-based magic show, which was successful in some ways and not in others. Um, but you learn an awful lot from doing something like that, and it's very hard to make that kind of show work. Um, there were some genius bits in it, absolutely really good bits, and then some other stuff that needed work. But also the show, because of the way it was created, cost an awful lot of money to, to make it run. So I think that was ultimately the difficulty for it. We did produce it again at Hoxton Hall, in fact, a few years later in an amended form, but it still cost too much money. Um, but we had things like we made a... We did Jim Pace's The Web Trick in it, but we then finished by producing a real tarantula. Um, which we had, uh, we had a nice prop made by Scott Penrose for that, where um, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal any magic secrets on this podcast. I'm not sure if I should. It's up to you. Okay. It's up to you. Well, basically, there was a bit where they had, we did the web trick um, initially, uh, but what the audience member doesn't realise is the chair they're sitting on, there's a secret compartment in the chair that contains a tarantula, so they're actually sitting on top of a tarantula at that point, and then that gets produced later on. Um, you can cut that bit out if it's not allowed to be said and I don't want to get into trouble with the magic circle so it's up to you but that's, things like that were kind of quite interesting like that we'd set things up like that and there, were, there was a couple of key routines in that that we really did uh, actually innovate quite a lot um, it got mixed reviews that show but hey, you know, anything does that is, is kind of alternative and difficult and, you know, uh, but there were some, some really great routines we did the floating table in it Burglass's floating table. Um, we did a transposition of, you know, the wallet watching keys thing, Tommy Wonders. Thing. Yes. Well, it wasn't that. It was the same title, but basically, it's a transposition of three objects from one, from the magician, to uh, a sealed box on stage that was completely sealed all the way around, and that was developed through kind of chatting with various different departments, and we, I think, we came up with something really great there um, so yeah uh, but I remember when the tarantula was brought into the rehearsal room because the handler came in he was like right so who wants to have a go first <laughs> we're like not me <laughs> so everyone had to hold this thing because obviously we had to in order to do the show and the stage manager had to load this thing <laughs> into the thing each night which they weren't happy at all about um, but what I didn't realise is they're actually really uh, fragile creatures so firstly they can't see anything that's forwards. They're, right. they're looking downwards. Yeah. And if you drop them from waist height, you, they die. When really? They're ground. Yeah, from the shock. And well, I guess, that, are they as furry as they look? Uh, I suppose so. Because I could imagine if it comes in, it's furry and it crawls, a lot of people would... The natural instinct yeah. is to move your hand out of the way. Of course it is. Um, but 
the start of it, I think they put it on your arm or something. So anyway, but, <laughs> but anyway, this has turned into how to avoid a tarantula death. Well, the other thing we did in the show was we produced a bunch of worms uh, out of a box. Um, and again, uh, poor worms, but you know, if they, if they drop from even the smallest height, I think they just die from the shock straight away. So, you know, <laughs> it was, it was quite a, an eye opener in some respects that show in terms of kind of respecting animals and stuff like that yeah um and did you get through the show without any de- any animal death well i mean a few worms obviously died yeah um we didn't kill any tarantulas so that's good uh yeah and um nothing we kind of got attached died. to it by the end of it uh, we called her mrs nip <laughs> but yeah um so yeah so that was a big show we did in the vaults but then after that I did a much smaller project, well I say small in some ways, but actually a long, much longer running project called Secret Cellar, which we produced with the same producer. And um, it was underneath, they, they bought a pub that was on Lower Marsh, just near the vaults, and they did it up in all the vaultsy fashion with all the kind of, you know, old scenery and set and paraphernalia. And then in the basement, I remember them showing me the space, and I said, well I have an idea for you. How about we make a magic theatre in the basement that's secret, that no one knows about, and you have to access it via a secret bookcase and all that kind of stuff. So we had a bookcase built and we did the shows down there. Um, it wasn't always ideal because they, there were things like they needed to come and change the barrel, so they had to come down to the shows and change the barrel. But, but it had a certain quirkiness about it yeah. and people really liked it and we produced some really interesting acts down there. Yeah, Mardi on there? Mardi Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we actually produced a show with him uh, as part of Vault Fest yeah. later on. So, yes. Um, so that was, well, that was after the Secret Salad project. We did two seasons of Secret Salad because it was really successful. So we did, did a second season. And we would have run a third one, or maybe more, except for the fact that the venue decided that they were going to turn the basement into a cocktail bar. Great. Boo. <laughs> Right, that's just venues wanting to make more money and getting greedy. But it's a shame because the Vaults' um, remit, at least supposedly, is to produce theatre and acts as well as to, um, to do that. I think initially because they wanted to build audience in that venue, they thought the Magic Theatre would be great to bring audience to the bar in the initial instance. They then realised that they, were gonna, they made far more money than they ever thought they would. So they then said, right, well, we'll just get rid of the entertainment aspect of it then, which was a shame um, because I think that could have really grown into something bigger. And I have thought about doing it again, but the problem is when you have two producers and a small venue and lots of acts, the numbers just don't stack up. No. And that's the problem. But it would be really nice for there to be another opening at some point for, you know, essentially what is a fringe theatre for magic, um, because I think that would be really nice. So if there's anyone out there who wants to do such a thing and has an interesting space, uh, preferably in the basement, um, then please do get in touch. But it just it requires someone to kind of be in the right place with that opportunity to do it. Um, so yeah, but you know we we had Paul Zenon down there. We had uh, we had who do we have? We had um, gosh, I can't remember. We had look it up. It's all on the website. <laughs> I can't remember which act we've had now. Did Etienne do it? No, he didn't actually. Uh, but he came to see the show. Uh, saw David Stone's show because I produced David Stone after that because David Stone was interested in doing the Secret Sabbath thing and I said well for your show it's a bit difficult because you need lots of there's lots of requirements for your show in terms of entrances and exits and projection and stuff like that 
So then we did the show uh, in the small room at Leicester Square Theatre, which was a great space. And guess what? It's been turned into a bar. Of course it has. Which is, it makes me furious. So they've just got the big room there now? They've only got the big room, and that's oh. used as... It's such a shame that there isn't a small space in London like that, because I said, look, I even, I even went to the producers just as they were going to turn it into the bar and said, I will offer you something for the year to turn it into a magic theatre, because I think it could be really good. Mm. And they said, no, we don't want to do it, we just want to turn it into a bar. That would have been wild. They've got a bar there anyway, haven't they? I know. It's more ridiculous. bars, more bars for It's just smart. I know drinks make money, but yeah. it's a shame that there isn't an outlet like that. Because what you know, a, a small room is perfect for magic. Uh, where you, you know, if you could tier the audience as well, decorate it the way you want it to look, it would be fantastic. Um, so yeah, and I did say to them, if you ever want to change your mind and it hasn't made as much money as you thought, give me a call. So you never know, because also it's Leicester Square as well. It's a perfect location. Um, right in the centre of town but these small places are disappearing all the time and you know because people just know that they can make more money doing something else what was it like producing um, David Stone there because obviously as magicians we know who he is and love yeah. him because he's such an enigmatic guy um, yeah. but I imagine you know over here he, he's, not a, he's not a household name no. by any means so uh, how, how was that producing him here uh, it was really good fun uh, we had a good time I went over to see him in Paris first of all I went to I remember going up the street to knock on his door, and I was about to knock on the door, and I could hear like a crazy French fan shouting away inside. And I was thinking, was it a good moment to knock on the door? I'm not quite sure. And it kept going on for a while. And I thought, well, I'd better just knock on the door then. And it turned out he was just running through his lines. <laughs> and he went, ah, ah, Tony, welcome to Paris. You have not been baptized. What? You have not stu stood in the dog shit. <laughs> But yeah, he's crazy, but really, really good fun. Um, but also one of, the, one of the hardest workers that I know, because I remember the Leicester Square show we were doing, I got a text from him about two or three in the morning saying, oh, this moment when I do this, should I, should I turn right or should I turn left? And I just thought, go to sleep. You know, it might be useful just to have a rest, David. <laughs> but yeah, he's just one of those people that just won't stop working. He'll, before a show, he'll just keep running stuff and running stuff and running stuff. I was like, well, you could get some dinner because you're going to need that energy later. But he just, you know, I'm just in my own little world. I'll, you know, so, but yeah, he's great. And, he, and um, what's nice about uh, him and some of the other French magicians is the way that they make stuff feels to be, they like collaboration with other people. They like fun and kind of playing around with ideas. And I feel like they do that more than us lot yeah. over here. And I think if there was more of a community of people who did that, that would be really useful. So, you know, having a fringe theatre for magic, if it's possible to make anything else happen in the future, which maybe I will, uh, would be really nice to try and encourage that atmosphere. <clears throat> because I also quite like doing things like where you completely change a space when you walk into it. So say you know this room, and you go, yeah, we'll go to this room. I know what it looks like, it's fantastic. You go in next time, guess what? Uh, we've sprayed the whole thing into a completely different colour, you know, or we do a Christmas show and it's all sprayed with ice and like the whole thing looks like walking into an ice chamber, for example, and we do a completely different show. So it's quite nice to change the space that someone's walked into before and make it something that they never even realised was possible in that room. Um, so I, I've always liked doing that. I've always been interested in stage design and coming up with design ideas for shows because quite often coming up with a design idea can fuel the rest of the production. Uh, you know, it's... Sounds obvious, but if you start with a with a with a 
a story or an, a visual reference point that can be much better than starting with a trick. Yeah. Although having said that, of course, one trick could be a very good starting point, providing it gives you enough of a story for the rest of the show. Not that it has to be a storyline, but people say, well, you know, do you script shows or not script shows? Well, quite honestly, any show has a script. It's whether or not you acknowledge that it as a traditional script or, you know, where you're going to say all the lines that are on the page or whether it's a sequence of actions, because a sequence of actions is still a script, right? There is a play, for example, called The Hour We Knew Nothing of Each Other, which is entirely stage directions. Have you heard of this play? No. No. So it was done at the National Theatre a while ago. Actually, it wasn't that great. <laughs> it wasn't as interesting as I thought. It's, it was more interesting reading it, probably, than watching it, but it was... But the idea that it's it's just a sequence of actions that um, and the the idea of that the problem was the play is interesting but it ends up feeling like a series of one-liners right rather than a connected story I think what would be really interesting is if because you have someone walk into a, a square uh, and things happen uh, to these different characters but there isn't a, an awful lot of through line in the in what occurs in front of the audience so you have uh, Peter Hanko, who wrote it, was interested in, in movement of people and stuff like that. So he had, he'd watch people walk across the square and see when it was, what it was like when the rhythm of people was, you know, there was only a few people there or when there was lots of people. But also, I think it's nice to pick up on individual stories. Um, I always thought that it would be interesting to, to write a play called The Hour and We Knew Something of Each Other and actually uh, connect uh, something to... Um, you know, people's journeys, but do it silently. So to kind of come back to where we are yeah. here, and and you know the the birth of the magic hour. Yes. Um, in Saint Pancras, did you was that a case of were they looking for something like that, or was did you just kind of think this would be a cool idea and and just go in and, and, and pitch cold? Yeah, that's what I did pretty much. Really? That's yeah. Great. I mean, they they weren't looking for such an idea. These places are never looking for that kind of thing, and I just kind of walked in and went well, could I speak to someone from the sales department, please? I've got an interesting idea for you. This is what you need in your hotel. And I think they were sort of intrigued and went, okay, let's talk about it then. But normally people don't just walk in and do that. So it takes quite a lot of balls to do that. Yeah. But having said that, that day, um, it was in January, it was freezing cold, and I'd previously gone round loads of restaurants because I was trying to pitch for a residency at the time. And I thought, today's the day. I've got my new shoes got my new suit, I'm going to go around all these restaurants and by the end of today I am going to have a residency. Guess what? Didn't get anything. Yeah. It was freezing, the new shoes hurt like hell and I felt really miserable by the end of the day. And then, just as I was about to get on the train on the way home, I went, oh, I'll try the St Pancras Hotel. That's a nice venue. <laughs> and that's what I said. And I then showed them a couple of tricks and they could see that I was half decent and they said, okay, let's talk about it. So, it, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where I suppose it's perseverance, but also it's, it's luck and it's about finding someone who likes the idea of a magic show, which there aren't that many of, to be fair. Um, similarly, coming to the Sheraton here, I just sat down in the Palm Court, I had a coffee and I said, uh, could I talk to the food and beverage manager, please? And they said, what's it regarding? Because they always have this sort of, you know, wall that you have yeah. to get through. And I said, oh, I've got an interesting idea to uh, increase sales in the bar here and with a show. I think it could be really fun. Could I talk to them? And they went, I oh, know it's not available. So I said, well, uh, if could I write something, uh, would you mind passing it to him? And they went, mm, okay. 
So I did that, I wrote it out, um, and I just sat there, and then eventually he came over and talked to me. And it just so happened that he had recently taken the post up and was actually looking for sort of, you know, different things to boost sales on particular nights. So he took the idea and said, yeah, let's, let's have a go. Um, and it was successful, so yeah. It just shows that you know sometimes the best way is just to go in uh, into the place and make sure you try and find the right person and speak to them and it can be really difficult to do that but people just ignore emails um, and something personal is always much much better I remember when I got a residency ages ago ones were common uh, I did I cover a now I remember I covered one for Chris Dugdale when I first started but I got I found my own one when I moved there for, to study I was living in Wandsworth at the time and the way I got the residency there was I just popped into the shop around the corner with some, with some you know, change to grab a pint of milk or something. And then casually walked into the restaurant and had a chat with the manager. And actually that worked better because I didn't look like someone who was going to sell them something they didn't want. Yeah. And I just had a chat with them and said, oh, you know, this is what I do. Um, do you think you might be interested in doing a little promotion maybe once a month on a Sunday lunch? And then that one kind of took off from there. So yeah, so I, I did loads of different restaurants. I did a curry restaurant, a curry house in St Albans when I first moved there. Um, and I learned very quickly what to do and what not to do because in that particular one, it was a, it was a buffet. And for some reason, the manager thought it'd be a great idea if um, all the kids could eat free. So what happened was, oh, goodness. That'd be a fire alarm test. Is that a fire alarm? Is that just a test? I think so. Start that bit again, shall I? Yeah, so go from, go from the curry house in St yeah. Albans. So actually, when I moved to St Albans, uh, I found a curry restaurant that I could work in. I, I set up a deal with them, and I, I learned a lot of stuff very, very quickly. So um, I learned that I had to do routines that didn't touch the table at all, because they had this idea that all the kids could eat for free. So what would happen on for a Sunday buffet? So that a mum would come in with about 14 kids and all oh, can we see the magician please, you know, brilliant. And if they touched anything, it would be like greasy as hell. So you learned straight away to do routines that didn't involve touching them or the table or anything. Um, so that was a good training ground. Um, and then I stopped doing residencies quite a while ago. I don't really do anything now other than, of course, I manage the magic acts at the masculine cook bar. Um, but I don't do any residencies now per se because uh, I've kind of shifted my focus in what I do but yeah and give us the details to, to kind of leave, leave the, the magic hour and then we'll, we'll tackle the other two sort of ventures as they are yeah um, just give us the kind of overall for, for those that don't don't know what it is you know what to expect when it's on all right and, yeah. and that kind of so it runs chat. the magic hour runs every Friday night um, or most Fridays anyway occasionally like tonight I've got a show on a Thursday as well at specific days in the year we might run more shows uh, but it's at least once a week um, we also do private hires as well at the show. Um, that's at, uh, the private show, sorry, the public shows, I should say, are at eight o'clock, and obviously private hires are at whatever time of day the client wants to book it, basically. Um, so yeah, eight, eight o'clock on a Friday night um, is typical for the magic hour. Yeah. And are your are your your punters predominantly guests here, or what what percentage are and aren't? Most people come from outside the hotel. Actually, yes, we get some from the hotel but not as big a percentage as you might expect. Um, even though it is advertised within the building, um, we have various concierges that recommend the show as well. But generally it's word of mouth. Um, people are looking for something different to do. We get a mixture of local people looking for a date night, birthday idea, 
something like that uh, to international audience who've seen magic before and have Googled magic shows in London before they arrive here. Um, so really quite a spectrum, actually. And then um, when did um, Slight of Hand on the Strand come? How, because obviously you've been doing it seven years now. Um, That's the magic, the magic hour, hour, yeah, well, it will be in April. Yeah, yeah. when did Slight of, Slight of Hand on the Strand come in? Uh, that started, I think, I think it's three years ago. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that was because this one had been successful, I then pitched a show to the Savoy Hotel. And we did the show in the Savoy initially in one of their small private rooms. And then we ended up doing the show in Simpsons in the Strand, which is they own as well, which is the restaurant around the corner. Uh, but upstairs they've got two function rooms and we use those. So it worked really well in those in all of those spaces. Uh, but obviously we couldn't, in the smaller rooms in Savoy, we couldn't get in the number of audience we needed. So initially when we did the show, we did it three times each night, which was knackering. Wow, yeah. Uh, now we do it twice. Um, but we really need to have capacity, so it's difficult. I mean, you could still do a show in the, in the Savoy for 20 people uh, in one of the smaller rooms, but of course it's hugely overbooked in there, so you know, we have to find ways to make it work with the venue, um, otherwise you're competing with people who are paying stupid money for those rooms um, in order to make it work, uh, which obviously you can't do if you've got 20 in the audience. So you need the capacity in order to pay, um, yeah, for the rooms, basically. <laughs> so, and yeah. what have you found uh, has, has kind of been the key to making these a success then in central London? The parlour magic show format people like because it's close, people can see. They feel they're involved in it and it's quite personal. So we're, we're quite often told, you know, oh, I went to Las Vegas recently and this is, I much preferred this show. You think, well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, ultimately, I think people like a personal experience and also something that has got a sense of uh, the, the show is made for the space. All of the shows that I do generally fit the room that they're in, uh, in terms of material, in terms of the way the show is run. So in, in this one, it's darker. It's slightly more World of the Prestige, Christopher Nolan. As whereas the slight hand on the strand was uh, initially because it's in Savoy, it's all themed around the Savoy and uh, kind of works with the 1920s Art Deco sort of feel. Um, and the, the show is, I suppose, of the feeling of, uh, you know, like those cabaret shows you would have had in the Beaufort Bar and that sort of thing. It has that kind of feeling of opulence about it. Of course, it's also got a connection with Max Mellini as well. Um, so all of that kind of feeds into the way that we deliver that show. So it's a sort of fast-paced kind of whistle-stop tour of magic from Victoriana to 1920s. And then we talk about magic in Chicago and stuff like that as well, and Divernon's influence. And so it's a fun way for someone who's not a magician to find out about magic history too, but without it being a dry history lesson. Mm. As well as the Magic Hour is much more a story uh, which draws you in. And then there's a series of reveals at the end of the show, which you don't see coming, hopefully. Um, I won't tell you what any of that is in case you watch the show. Um, but yeah, so they, they have both evolved in different ways, quite often inspired by the space that they're in. And in fact, I would quite often say that I choose a space first before I choose what show to put in it. Um, or, or if I've got a show I really want to do, I, I make sure that it's in the right space, that, you know, that it's going to work in there. So yeah. 
and then moving on to mass mailing. Like how long yeah. is that? Be? That's just over a year, is it? Or when, when did that? Yeah, that's right. Off? So it's it's had its year anniversary uh, end of November. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how's that been then? Well, this year with that baby. That's been interesting because uh, so the obviously the hotels are all connected and. The general manager of that hotel walked past my show here and then asked to have a meeting with me. He thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we'll do a show in our venue. And I said, mm, possibly, because I was looking at the spaces, thinking, does the show work here? Uh, and actually, in fact, we produced the London Festival of Close-Up Magic yep. uh, in that venue, which actually worked quite well there. I kind of was thinking about it, but didn't want to commit. And I said, but I have got a really interesting idea. So I really wanted to do is to make a magic bar. And he said, oh, that's interesting, because we're actually just re doing our bar at the moment so would you like to talk to our team about that so I then discussed with everyone about the idea of a you know a destination bar that was magic themed um, and, try, and where we produce magic four or five nights a week um, and that people go there specifically for that experience and so that has drawn an awful lot of people into magic who otherwise you know wouldn't have known about it and known about the bar as well because previously it was just a hotel bar that, with nothing unique about it um, so <clears throat> I went to the British Library and I sourced images from Egyptian Hall. So I said, the first thing you need to do is not call it the magic bar, because as soon as you do that, someone else will copy the idea, uh, and then you've got nowhere to go because there's then another magic bar that they can go to. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, it's probably might help in fact, but it then no longer becomes unique. So I said, you need to theme it around Egyptian Hall, because Egyptian Hall was just down the road from your venue, um, so pull out the history of that of the of the local area, which probably Marriott as a brand would probably quite like to do anyway. Uh, so I then said, you know, name it after the two producers, Masculine and Cook. Um, so I then helped them source the images to go on the walls, and then looked at the programming of the acts, gave them some advice on magic cocktails and things like that in terms of theming. I had some ideas, they had some other ideas. I like some of them, don't like some of the others. But hey, it's a collaboration at the end of the day. For me, it hasn't quite gone far enough yet. So I, there's a lot of things that I would do that budget wouldn't allow and that wasn't within Marriott branding guidelines. So I do sometimes feel frustrated because I know that I would do more than what they've done. But it's a slow process. And in the next few weeks, we have meetings to discuss, you know, uh, added extras to the bar to really bring out that story and it'll be interesting to see whether we can pull it out further because I, I initially said well, what you need to do is you need to make it a secret entrance because people love secrets and it needs to look like a inside the backstage at Egyptian Hall right make it look like the scene dock you know with all the stuff everywhere and you know put some pharaohs in there and some you know spray all the walls gold and put hieroglyphics on it and they were like, mm, it sounds a bit kitsch to us. I'm not sure if that would go down well with the customers. Because the problem is with the hotels, they never like to offend the customer. Mm. I was like, yeah, but you're making a magic bar. Make it a magic bar. Don't sort of, you know, half do it and just apologise for the fact that you've done it. So, unfortunately, you meet this kind of stuff quite often. Um, because they, they don't want to don't want to rock the boat too far. So it's And also, they need to road test the idea. To be fair to them, they don't know if it's going to work. They could spend £100,000 refitting the bar and then find out that actually it's a complete disaster and then the GM could lose his job over it. So, you you know, that, that makes sense too from their perspective. But I think over time it will emerge. But what is quite nice about it is that we've gone for the black and white theming and the rabbit in the hat, which 
you know, I mentioned was on the front of Our Magic, which of course isn't Baskin and Cook, it's Devant, but never mind. Uh, uh, at least it looks magical, um, and I think they like that aspect of it. But there's more they could go, there's further they could go with curios on the walls and, you know, interesting objects and making it kind of more hidden and a bit quirkier. Uh, so we're going to look into developing that further over the next year. Uh, but they are currently in the position of being the only magic classic magic bar in London, I believe. Um, and they have branded it as such for the moment, at least. Uh, but it means that anyone else coming behind us has got a fair amount of catching up to do because they've had a year of magicians being programmed for four nights a week. So, yeah, and of course, off the back of that, we also did the Close-Up Magic Festival, uh, London Festival of Close-Up Magic, uh, and we had, you know, some interesting acts in that as well. Uh, it was nice to see different people uh, performing totally different styles of magic, and I'm thinking about what we might do this year. Um, so, yeah. And for those that don't know the history, why, yeah. why Masculine and Cook, uh, the name bearers of the bar? Well, so they produced Egyptian Hall. Yeah. So that ran for 31 years. Um, and so it made sense. Because, the, for example, over at the Sheraton here, we've got a bar called Smith & Whistle. So there's this kind of fad at the moment in five-star hotels for creating a name that's sort of something and something. Yeah. And then people go, oh, what's that? And then they find out more. So that's kind of basically how it works. And then in the menu, you've got the history of, of Egyptian Hall told through the cocktails. So that's quite a nice thing as well. But whether you want to take it or leave it, whether you've just popped in for a glass of wine or whether you have gone in to get a more immersive kind of magic evening, you can take it as far or as little as you want. And that's really nice. And it's, 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 I guess it's, the, it's a free bar, so to speak, that you can, you know, you can come in and you buy your drinks or, yeah. or is there a cover charge to the, to the bar? Uh, well, you can just come in as long as you pay for your drinks. That's, yeah. that's fine, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, the drinks aren't cheap, but, you know, there's a five-star hotel. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, th I did say, you know, we really want to get in a position where you have to reserve because that would be really nice to be able to say, you know, to have someone outside saying, you know, are you on the list for this evening? That's, that's where we want to aim to be. Um, we'll see how it goes, but it's, uh, it's certainly been very popular um, and it's accessed a lot of people who didn't know about magic before, which is great. Um, and you know, those people might buy a ticket to see a show in the future. So it's, it's a journey that you've started for somebody else. Cause you, you know, you get those people who've, you know, flown in from Singapore or something and you're like, did you know you're in London's only magic theme bar? And they're like, no, what? <laughs> uh, and then they love it yeah. and they become your, you know, your best audience. Um, of course, Americans love magic anyway, and there's lots of people who, you know, things like been to the Magic Castle and come over and made a point of coming to the Magic Bar. Um, so yeah, and Americans always tip really well, so that's good. Um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been interesting. It's been fun. I mean, it sounds like you've got you've got your hands very full, um, yeah. plenty of plates spinning. But um, is there any kind of um, anything further ahead that, that, that you're looking towards or is it just a case of keeping these plates spinning for now? For the moment I'm keeping the plates spinning because I also have a one-year-old son to look after. Uh, so <laughs> it's a bit of a handful when you know anyone who's had a child will know how much time that takes and lack of sleep, etc. So trying to produce shows on top of that is quite hard work. Having said that, I do have some other potential things that I might do in the future. I have one another immersive magic show that I might produce in an interesting space that I know no one has ever done. Uh, so that could be really fun. I'm thinking about programming acts for the summer, for the Festival of Close-Up Magic, and what I might do and where it might be. 
Um, When's that likely to run? It'll be late August, early yeah. September. Um, and then I, I do have some other ideas as well. I mean, I also have a, I've also written a TV show, uh, but it's not produced yet. But I want to do that because I have a really interesting idea for a TV show that is just a step away from copying street magic repeatedly. Yeah, well, that's that's what that's what it needs. I think it's got yeah. to the point that we're not seeing many magic shows being produced on TV, and I think that's the reason people mm. haven't. Someone hasn't come come with the next yeah. uh, revolution, which is what's needed. Yeah. Well, actually, I have two. I have two really good ideas for TV, and it's a question of when. Uh, I think something might happen because you have to line up various things, and sometimes you know one guy likes it, another guy doesn't like it, or there's an opening, or there isn't an opening. Uh, but it seems to me that annoyingly TV wants to copy stuff that's already been successful. So therefore it becomes a watered down version of itself. And or they just go for, well, we'll spread ourselves thin so we'll have lots of different acts in a competition format and we'll shove celebrities in it and then we'll get some viewers. But actually it doesn't necessarily work like that. But the problem is they've got to pitch it to someone who's going to pay the money and at the end of the day they're taking a risk. If they, you know, getting your own show these days is very hard work. But I have a plan, and that's something I'd like to do over the next five years, um, because I, I think it could be really interesting. Um, but only if it's done the way I want it done. Otherwise, I don't think I would do it. Because I was asked to do Britain's Got Talent and all that kind of stuff, like everyone else is. But I just don't like the fact that you don't have any control. Yeah. You can have a great experience or you can have a terrible experience, and it's not up to you. You know, I, when they phoned me up, I said, well, if you can give me the final say on whether or not I can, that piece is shown, so I have editorial control over my footage, I'll do it. But otherwise, I won't do it. And they said, no. And I said, well, fine. So I don't want my shows ruined overnight because you've set me up to fail. Not necessarily that they would, but they certainly have had a reputation in the past. So I don't trust anyone in that respect. Why, why would I? <laughs> So yeah, so if I do it, it'll be on my terms, otherwise I won't do it. But I think I will. <laughs> Cheers, Tony. That's perfect. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.